you know, I imagined it would be this place replete with uh, just dozens of apothecary bottles filled with, uh, you know, just various and sundry flora and fauna. And I was not disappointed. You know, you've got the you've got the apothecary bottle of scarabs over there, and the Ehrlichman, the bubbling Ehrlichman flasks with the fog coming off of them. You know, it's it's just I can tell that there's a lot of a lot a lot brewing here. Sure is. This is the Poetry Pharmacy. Always something brewing here because there's always something brewing in your brain. And that is poetry. You know that, right? That's the voice of Kaveh Akbar you just heard there, who is our guest this week in the pharmacy. It'll be no surprise to you if you've read Kaveh's work that he positioned himself for our talk right in front of the open furnace we have burning day and night in the laboratory section of the premises. And right next to a piece of equipment we call the still. This is used by poets to distill coarse, fleeting, visceral emotions and thoughts into the concentrated solution of their poems. You've probably seen one of these before. It's a, it's a tub and you've got a copper head with a swan neck and this long spiral pipe where the vapours of frustration and joy and sadness get condensed into poetry. I'm only mentioning this because you might pick up on the recording a slight hum from Kaveh's microphone. Now you know that it's not air conditioning that you're hearing there, it's fire. So let's get going with a poem that Kaveh brought into the pharmacy for us to read and talk about. I'll let him introduce it. So this is The Neighborhood Dog by Russell Edson. A neighborhood dog is climbing up the side of a house. I don't like to see that. I don't like to see a dog like that, says someone passing in the neighborhood. The dog seems to be making for that second story window. Maybe he wants to get his paws on the sill. He may want to hang there and rest his tongue throbbing from his open mouth. Yet in the room attached to that window, the one just mentioned, a woman is looking at a cedar box. This is, of course, where she keeps her hatchet. In that same box, the one in this room, the one she is looking at. That person passing in the neighborhood says, that dog is making for that second story window. This is a nice neighborhood. That dog is wrong. If the dog gets his paws on the sill of the window, which is attached to the same room where the woman is opening her hatchet box, she may chop at his paws with that same hatchet. She might want to chop at something. It is, after all, getting close to chopping time. Something is dreadful. I feel a sense of dread, says that same person passing in the neighborhood. It's that dog that's not right, not that way. In the room attached to the window that the dog has been making for, the woman is beginning to see two white paws on the sill of that same window, which looks over the neighborhood. She says, it's wrong. Something, the windowsill, something, the windowsill. She wants her hatchet. She thinks she's going to need it now. The person passing in the neighborhood says, something may happen. That dog, I feel a sense of dread. The woman goes to her hatchet in its box. She wants it, but it's gone bad. It's soft and nasty. It smells like something that's lost its ghost. 
She wants to get it out of its box, that same cedar box where she keeps it, but it bends and runs through her fingers. Now the dog is coming down, crouched low to the wall, backwards, leaving a wet streak with its tongue down the side of the house. And that same person passing in the neighborhood says, that dog is wrong. I don't like to see a dog get like that. It's not over yet. That's great. <laughs> so I love your reading of it. Um, the, you know, this, this kind of laconic reading, um, it kind of brings out it brings out something in the poem that I hadn't seen before. This almost like gothic Coen mm -hmm. Brothers type mm -hmm. vibe in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I like the introduction of the Coen Brothers into that. You could you could imagine this being sort of like the backdrop to a far you know like this is like sort of like like Fargo fan fiction or something. You know what I mean? Like just like in in sort of like a parallel universe or something like that. Yeah. So this first line: a do a neighborhood dog is climbing up the side of a house. Mm -hmm. Of course. Dogs don't climb up the sides <laughs> of houses, right? I mean, cats do. So this is a dog that is acting like a cat. So that's already, mm -hmm. this is a strange thing. It's a sort of mm -hmm. a, it's a strange dog or it's a strange world in which dogs act like cats. It's a kind of, I mean, would you agree that it's a sort of a dream logic is going, is, is what this poem is about? It's, it's taking us into that kind of space? Yeah, I think that um, it's definitely taking us into a space that privileges these kinds of associate, associative relationships between actors. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it very much feels, you know, like I was saying, like the texture of a fable, right? Where it's just a kind of ecosystem unto itself with a kind of logic and a kind of physics unto itself. And in the physics of this poem, dogs can climb up sides of houses and hatchets will melt in your hands because they go bad, you know? And, and, and it feels like all of these things are very organic and native to the world of this poem. Mm. I mean, the word dreadful seems to be important for this poem, doesn't mm -hmm. it? The word dreadful and dread, mm -hmm. um, there's something here about anxiety. Uh, it feels like this, the anxiety of the speaker or the anxiety of some of the people in the poem, it feels like they're projecting some of that dread onto the dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, all that stuff about the dog being, it's wrong. How do you read that? the wrongness of the dog and how yeah. it's <clears throat> I think the I think that the projection of anxiety is very I mean I think that that's very important you know and I think that the word dread I agree is very very important you know there is this very very sort of like tactile kind of astonishingly so sense of dread in this poem I think I think that <clears throat> excuse me um you know the the word dread is used a couple times in the poem um but it's felt really everywhere right um, the whole poem builds to this point of dread where by the time you get to the dog leaving a wet streak with its tongue down the side of the house, you know, that is one of the most like unsettling images I've ever encountered in literature, any literature, any media, you know, any, any author living or dead, you know, the something about that dog leaving a wet streak with its tongue down the side of its house is just so deeply unmooring to me and I can't tell you what it is and I think that it is because of the way that the poem primes us for that action the way that the poem primes us for that image you know I don't think that that image taken in isolation would be as as rending you know but because of the context that 
Edson has so masterfully built, uh, that image is just like staggering. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I could I could dream about that image for the rest of my life. Right. You know, uh, that could just be like the great terror. You know, that I see instead of like you know, uh, it's it's that striking of an image to me. I do I do wonder though if some of these images of dread and these images of uh, this sense of the uncanny in a way, if there is something somewhat of subjective to our sense of dread, because for me, I don't. I don't respond to that image sure, sure, sure. Totally. in the same way, and, and and maybe actually I don't respond to the poem like that. I mean, sure. um, you know, when I received this poem from you, I was I was a little bit surprised because I'm so <laughs> used to reading what I kind of see as the what I kind of kind of call the the Akbar anthology, right? For those, for those people <laughs> Wait, who tell don't me more. Know, for those people who don't follow you on Twitter, okay, um, you are a bit of a phenomenon, as it were, <laughs> on that platform because you share a huge number of poems. You share poems that you're reading every day, and mm -hmm. I see them as a kind of anthology. I mean, sure. we're, we're up to thousands now, thousands sure, of sure. poems that you have shared on Twitter. Sure. And, and being a keen reader of your anthology, when I got this poem, I was like, Hang on a second. <laughs> this isn't a cover. This isn't an Akbar anthology poem. Sure, sure, but then, sure. But then I went back and I, you know, and I looked through the anthology. You know, I paged back, if one can page, <laughs> through the anthology. And I find this tweet in April 2016 or something. Wow. Where, where this is what you say, right, about this poem. You say, which is kind of what you've said now, you said... Edson's The Neighborhood Dog is objectively one of the five greatest poems of the past 50 years. That's a hill I die on. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like me. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> because I suppose for me, as much as I admire the poem and I see the, sure. the, the, the fable quality of it, sure. for me, it's... It's slightly flat. It's slightly prosy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really get. I don't really get the pleasure of the. There's not much pleasure for me in the language of this poem. Whereas for you, there clearly is. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering. You know, it's a bit like when people talk about Lydia Davis and how wonderful her work is. Mm -hmm. And I read it, and I ex I'm expecting something. I'm expecting something deeply unsettling, and I find sure. something slightly flat. Sure. And I was wondering um, where you find, if you find, um, pleasure, the pleasure of language, shall we say, in this poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I find the pleasure of language, you know, all throughout this poem. I totally hear what you're saying, you know. Uh, and that, that tweet is, like, just perfectly, you know, I, I, it's very, very in keeping with my uh, tendency to hyperbole. Though I really don't, I mean, I really would, you know, defend this poem in that way. You know, I could write... Uh, uh, you know, I could argue convincingly to that end. Um, you know, pleasure is all throughout this poem to me. You know, to the 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 sort of literal situation of this poem is so strange. You know, all I want in a poem is a new encounter with language, a defamiliarized experience of language, a defamiliarized experience of the world around me. You know, and often, you know, so much of the world around me I process through language, right? Um, 
And this is like a completely new world. I've never been in a world like this where dogs climb up the sides of houses and uh, a woman is just constantly thinking like, oh, if that dog comes up here, I'm going to need to get out my hatchet from the box that I keep my hatchet in. And then, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how you can read a line like the woman goes to her hatchet in its box. She wants it, but it's gone bad. It's soft and nasty. It smells like something that's lost its ghost. Like a ha- the hatchet smells like, I mean, there are so many levels to that. Like we don't think about smell when we think about hatchets. What does it mean to smell like something that's lost its ghost? What does it mean to lose a ghost, period? Um, and like, how would that contribute to something going soft and nasty? You know, there, there's well, so well, many the hatchet has become this. something else. It's become something phallic. It's become an eel. It's become it's become something that sure. does have a smell, right? Sure, sure, totally. And, but I mean, like the 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 world that this in the world that this is in, which we only know through this poem. You know, every every poem Edson writes takes place in a different world. You know, um, each with its own ecology and physics and botanical life. You know, like like all of these things are. Each poem that Edson writes is totally new in that way. Um, and the world in the world of this poem, it seems by the time we get to the hatchet melting through her fingers, it seems that, like it's the only thing the hatchet could do by the time she gets it out. You know, it seems like it's just the totally natural thing for the hatchet to do. So I'm always after that experience of newness and defamiliarization um, in poems. And this 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 poem to me seems like a real like straight shot of that now i will also say i think that there's something in this poem uh that is vibrating at the specific frequency of my neuroses mm. you know like just vibrating at the that exact frequency of my you know neurotic <laughs> well, well that's higher what, that's brain. where i <laughs> that's where i was going to sort of call you up on this word objectively because you know, <laughs> sure, you go, sure. you go. Edson's the neighborhood dog is objectively one of the five greatest poems. Now, I have no problem with you saying it's one of the five greatest poems as far as you're <laughs> concerned, but objectively, well, surely I think it has to be according to, as you say, according to your particular kink. Think about poem kink. Sure. Think about how many people have come from the James Tate tree the James Tate poetry tree, whether it be, you know, literally students of his or students of that very, very particular and surreal aesthetic, which had roots in sort of like Russian surrealism, but didn't really have roots in American poetry um, or, you know, uh, in English poetry, really, that I know of either. You know, that that branch of surrealism is very, very tethered to Tate. And Tate himself was very, very, very indebted to Edson. And this this poem, you know, Tate has written about this poem as being like a favorite of his, of Edson's work. So I think that there is a very, you know, if, if I were like arguing this in like a sort of more academic setting, there's a, there's a very, very like specific lineage that can be traced, you know, to this poem, which again, I see, I see traces of in sort of Russian surrealists. Um, but I don't necessarily know that there's a lot of English precedent for this sort of writing in poetry. I think that there are, is precedent for this sort of writing in plenty of European fiction and things like that. But, um, but I don't know that there is a lot of precedent for this kind of world building, this kind of surrealism in English poetry before Edson. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be interested what other people, people listening to the podcast think about this poem. You know, Freud famously said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious Hmm. Um, but then there'll be other people post-Freud who kind of go well dreams are you know you had 
too much cheese before bedtime. And, <laughs> and I do wonder if people might be split slightly on, on the Edson in terms of thinking it, you know, the royal road to um, poetic uh, fireworks or too much cheese. Um, <laughs> but on that note, let's move, if that's okay, moving yeah, swiftly uh, through through the labyrinths of poetry, trying to make a trying to make a connection. No, here. that was um, good. That was good. I see what you're <laughs> up to. Uh, to Miroslav Holub, um, which is my choice um, for the pharmacy today, mm-hmm. and this is uh, one of his Minotaur poems, Minotaur's thoughts on poetry. Um, the Edson poem was written sort of mid-70s, early 70s, uh, th- as far as I know, Minotaur, similar times. So this, they, they, they could have come out at a similar, they could have been written at similar times, these two hmm. poems. Hmm. Um, I, didn't, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, I just realized that when I was kind of looking at the, the publication history of, of, of the two of them. So let me read for us um, the Minotaur. Just check this is still going. Good, okay. <clears throat> So, the Minotaur's thoughts on poetry. Certainly, this thing exists, for on dark nights, when unseen, I walk through the snail-like windings of the street, the sound of my own roar reaches me from a great distance. Yes, this thing exists, for surely even cicadas were once of gigantic stature, and today you can find mammoths' nests under a pebble. The earth, of course, is lighter than it once was. Besides, evolution is nothing but a long string of false steps, and it may happen that a severed head will sing. And it's not due, as many believe, to the invention of words. Blood in the corners of the mouth is substantially more ancient, and the cores of the rocky planets are heated by the grinding of teeth. Certainly, this thing exists because a thousand bulls want to be human, and vice versa. So, starting at the beginning again, this thing exists. What do you think the thing is here? Um, is it poetry? Is it the Minotaur? I mean, both of <laughs> them are, are fabulous creatures in a way. <laughs> I like that very much. Uh, you know, I read this poem thinking that I, I've, each time I've read this poem, I've been thinking about the thing as poetry. Um, but then, you know, that second stanza sort of does point to maybe it being the Minotaur. I just love, you know, so much of Holub's work uh, is interested in, you know, the the hard sciences and their their applications in verse you know and so much of this poem kind of like mixes 
uh, mixes facts, you know, facts about the world, you know. Uh, the earth, of course, is lighter than it once was. Besides, evolution is nothing but a long string of false steps. Like, these are, these are scientific, you know, facts. We, we know that, um, we know these things to be the case. Um, but then it will, but then it sort of marries them uh, to, it may happen that a severed head will sing, you know. Uh, it marries them to these kinds of assertions that mirror the rhetoric of the scientific assertions, you know? And so we, we take them with the same level of credibility that we take those scientific assertions, and the, the effect is, you know, wonderful. It, it just puts us in this place where we're willing to believe anything, you know? It's not even a suspension of disbelief. It's just a, it's just a place of trust, you know? Um, and yeah. I, I, think that that's so, I think that that's so staggering. And that's also a wonderful, and I think a staggeringly true description in many ways of, of your own poetry and of what, of what you do quite often um, in the way that you meld together um, these, these, these interesting facts um, mm-hmm. of, you know, from science and mm-hmm. from other disciplines mm-hmm. with almost a kind of shamanic um, knowledge or a shamanic wisdom in a way. I love that. I love that very, very much. You know, both of my parents, my, my dad is a geneticist, my mom's a microbiologist, you know, so I grew up sort of suffused in the language of science, you know, um, and still to this day, that's the dinner table conversation when I go home, you know, they, they want to talk about, uh, you know, genetics and play little games and, you know, uh, talking about like, if this person and this person had a baby, what would be the likelihood that they would have blue eyes, you know, like playing these little games, you know, um, so it's just been such a, it's just been such a native part of my vernacular and, and such a load bearing part of my curiosity about the world in general, you know, um, uh, so much of the way I think about poetry is uh, is just a process of building these little houses in which to put my wonder at the world, you know? Uh, and there's nothing more astonishing than, you know, uh, than, than the natural world, the, study, the close study of the natural world. You know, much has been written um, more articulately than I'll be ever, 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 than I will ever be able to say about this idea. But I mean, I really believe in the notion that science, in in its purest uh, sense, is just a kind of looking, a kind of like intensive looking, right? And that's what poetry is too, right? That's what the poet does. Is we just we just watch, you know. And so they, they seem very, very married to me. And this poem is, and really all of Holob's work is sort of a celebration of that, you know. And yet the speaker at the beginning of the poem, whoever that is, feels that he needs to justify this thing. Let's call it, if if it is poetry, he feels he needs to justify poetry as continuously people feel they need to. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Zapruder is the the latest um, (laughs) in that line of of trying to justify it, um, uh, justify it. Uh, whereas science is, it's not, that's n- no longer expected of science to justify it in that way. Who, <laughs> maybe, who maybe not, maybe not in Great Britain it is, and in America we're still fighting to, okay. <laughs> in America there are, a lot, there are plenty of people who, <laughs> to whom science still needs to be justified, but right. I, I take, I get your point. Who do you think he's having to justify this to? And I suppose I'm also asking there, you know, this bigger question of who, yeah, who who do we need to who do we need to justify poetry to? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You know, um, I think that the speaker of the poem 
is just sort of like I think that the speaker of the poem is interested sort of in a way of uh, a way of examining you know like you said these two fabular creatures you know like these there we have these two fantastic things that are like almost too magical too mysterious to believe exist you know what I mean uh, and I, th- I think that the fact that you know there's this sort of um, question of whether or not the thing you know the the thing that the poem opens with and the second stanza open with opens with uh, can be read to be about either the Minotaur or poetry you know either or both or both and um, is a kind of way of drawing a connection between those two things a kind of way of saying you know like you said these are both fabulous creatures and they both you know, they, they both are sort of inspire our wonder in the same way, you know. Oppen has, uh, Oppen has a really, really beautiful quote about, like, um, uh, it's, I, he says something to the effect of, I don't care for systems, it's the, it's the study of astonishment that interests me, you know. Um, I might be butchering that, um, uh, the philosophy of the astonished, or something to that effect. Um, but, uh, but, you know, this, this seems like a poem about astonishment you know astonishment at the natural world astonishment at the fact that something so magical as poetry can exist just as you know where where you know it's not due as many believe to the invention of words you know uh that denote the poems it is the things like blood in the corners of the mouth and the you know the grinding of teeth these are the things from which poetry was first built before we had the words uh for poetry we had the sort of um the physiological psychological uh-huh. stimuli that preceded them in my experience you know I grew up um, I came to America when I was two and a half but I was born in Iran um, and so uh, you know I grew up saying the Muslim prayer with my parents you know uh, and this is a prayer that you say in Arabic which you know in Iran they speak Farsi um, so we were all saying this prayer that none of us understood um, but we would say it every day you know uh, and we would we would make these sounds with our mouths and move through these stations of devotion with our bodies. Um, and I took this to, I, I understood this as a way to talk to the divine, right? Like if I make this series of sounds and if it sounds beautiful and urgent enough, I will be able to communicate with the divine, you know? Um, and I had no idea what I was saying to this day. I don't, you know, I've, you know, I've read translations and stuff like that, but like, consciously if I make the sounds I don't know like I don't remember like which sound uh relates to which meaning so from the my first experience of lyrical charge language was just sonic was purely sonic no meaning at all you know what I mean and I think that that really relates to the way I think about poetry a lot today you know you you use the word shamanic and I, I really like that you know uh because it is this kind of um incantatory experience you know where uh, so much of it is just the urgency of the language and the sonic textures of the language. You know, if it feels urgent uh, and mellifluous enough, then it will feel to me like a way of communicating with whichever divine I'm addressing, you know. The process of writing poetry and reading poetry is inextricable from my spiritual practice today. You know, they're, um, they're it's not, you know, it's... I. I it's not even a Venn diagram, you know, it's, it's one circle, you know, um, it's, I, I, so much of the way that I can access, uh, I can access my cosmological self and orient myself cosmologically 
happens in the process of writing for me. Um, and so much of my ability to understand that orientation, to interpret that orientation happens in the writing to me. Um, you know, uh, even the least mystical, you know, most sort of grounded skeptical poets will talk about the process of sitting down to write and, you know, hours fly by and suddenly I had a poem, you know, even, even the, even the most skeptical among us, you know, will, will sort of mine the language of the supernatural to talk about the experience of writing, you know? Um, and so that's something that's, that's, that's as close as I can feel to the divine is when I'm, is when I'm sort of in the throes of that, which is not dissimilar from, you know, the tradition of Sufis, you know, repeating, uh, you know, Allahu Akbar, you know, 5,000 times in the morning when they wake up, you know, the, the way that the language kind of carries them to, you know, I mean, there, there, and, and there are rich traditions like that, um, in every, in every sort of, uh, organized religion, you know, there's, there are these sort of, these kinds of traditions where language takes us to a place of, um, higher consciousness or higher connection, higher intimacy with the divine. Well, why don't we let you, if that's okay, do some of your wonderful dervish whirling, <laughs> wailing, um, and, and read for us one of your own poems. Sure. This is one of the more, uh, this is one of the more controlled poems in the book. This is one of the less dervishy, less whaley poems in the book. Um, uh, it's a little bit more uh, it's a little bit sparer. Um, it's called Portrait of the Alcoholic Stranded Alone on a Desert Island. I live in the gulf between what I've been given and what I've received. Each morning I dig into the sand and bury something I love. Nothing decomposes. It might sound ungrateful to say I expected poetry, but I did. Palm forests and clouds above them arranged like Dutch still lifes. Musically colored fauna lounging in perpetual near smiles. Instead, these tumors under the surf. Wildness to appear where you are unexpected. My favorite drugs are far from here. Our father, who art in heaven, always just stepped out while earth, the mother, everywhere is around. It all just means so intensely. Bones on the beach, calls from the bushes, the scent of edible flowers floating in from the horizon. I hold my breath, the boat I am building will never be done. Thank you. So, um, hmm. I mean, the, the whole of, in a way, I suppose you could, you could say it's a kind of an, a, a sort of an ars poetica kind of poem. Sure. Right? Sure. Sure. Would it be fair to say that there, are, there, are, there is something of that in in this poem. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I ask that because lines like, each morning I dig into the sand and bury something I love, nothing decomposes. To me, that feels like a, like a beautiful encapsulation of, 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 of what poetry c could be, can yeah. be. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a I think that's a really really smart and generous read. Um, this is also the only poem in the book in which the word poetry appears, or poem, or any sort of mention of that appears, and that that was a very deliberate thing. Um, it's the last poem in the collection. Um, it's a collection about moving from the throes of active addiction into early recovery, into sort of middle recovery, um, and I think that it is very true of my experience of addiction that the obsessiveness and the compulsivity of addiction never really went anywhere you know it never went away but in my experience it just sort of sublimated into this thing that I have now with poetry you know I wake up and I want to read poetry and I want to write right away and I want to talk about poetry all day and I want to surround myself with people who want to talk about poetry and I want to write as much as I can get away with writing um and I just the last thing I'm thinking about when I go to sleep is the sorts of poetry things I'm going to be doing the next day you know um it's the only thing that I mean it is at any given moment occupying 85 percent of my consciousness at a minimum you know and so there, there's no difference there's absolutely no difference between that and in my previous life the the sort of chemical obsessions that I had you know it's it's absolutely the exact same thing it's just that this one is killing me uh, more slowly <laughs> or not at all you know um, uh, so it's a it's certainly a favorable trade but um, I don't think that the the sort of tendencies or obsessiveness or these sorts of things uh, in spite of all the sorts of tools and things like that that I've ga- gained in recovery, have I don't think those things have gone anywhere, you know. Um, and I think that this poem is sort of pointing to that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a wonderful and novel way of also approaching self-care and I suppose self-cure, which we're all, you know, um, whatever our addiction is, we're all, we're all addicts of one form or another, right? Yeah, um, yeah whatever our self-cure is, I think that's such a healthy way of thinking about a self-cure in the sense of, you know, we, we can't necessarily kill or bury in this case, right? We can't necessarily mm-hmm. bury parts of ourselves, parts of ourselves that maybe are compulsive, maybe parts we don't particularly like or cause problems for us at times. We can't bury those parts, kill those parts, um, because they're part of us they're Mm -hmm. i mean they're powerful libidinal energies absolutely yeah you make room in the bed for it you know you you can't you can't just try to lock it out of the house you know it's going to find a way in you you just kind of have to figure out a way to make room in the bed for it um uh and that's you know sort of what i have done and what i am working daily to continue to do you know is try to figure out a way to work alongside it because you know it lives in my brain you know it lives in the, the same organ that controls my breathing and my, you know, the contractions of my diaphragm and the contractions of my intestinal muscle, you know, like the, the, the contractions of my cardiac muscle, you know, the same organ that controls all of these things is the same organ that wants me to go out and do these really harmful things, you know what I mean? And so I'm, it's not going anywhere, you know, I can't have it removed. Uh, and so it's just a, it's just a function of learning how to live with it and hopefully like I, like I said, you know, sublimate that energy into something else on a day-to-day basis. Tell me about this last line a little bit. Um, again, it feels, it feels like it has, or it could have, it could be, it's talking about your journey, it's talking about the journey of self-development, individuation, however you want to talk about it, but it could also be talking about 
you know, poetry, I suppose, right? The bow tie building will never be done. I suppose what it makes me wonder about is, is poetry, is the poem always an incomplete project? Or is there such a thing as the perfect poem? <laughs> the objectively perfect poem, as you would suggest the Edson perhaps is. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. I, I don't know that I would say the Edson is a perfect poem. I'd, I'd say that it is, you know, I'd say, I'd say that it is one of the great poems, but I don't know that I'd say it was a perfect poem. Um, incidentally, I have a poem called The Perfect Poem, uh, which, is a sort of, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek title. Uh, it's not in this book, but... Um, but uh, but no, I, I think I think that's a very smart read. I think that you know, as we've talked about, so much of this poem is about the conflation of my poetic practices with my recovery, with my you know burgeoning spiritual self, you know, and, and all of these things kind of were happening at the same time, and so there was a way in which they became very conflated in my head, and just as you know, the process of my recovery will never be done. You know, I'll never be cured of this thing. Um, the process, you know, I, I will also have never written, you know, like you say, the perfect poem. You know, I think that one of the really, really sort of miraculous things about poetry or, you know, one of the, one of the things that I love about poetry is that we're taking what it, we're taking written language, which is, a kind of approximation for accounting for speech, right? You know, it's not exactly, you can't account for like tonality and all these things in written language. Um, but it's a kind of approximation of speech. And speech itself is a kind of approximation of thought. You know, there, there are textures to thought that we can't replicate in spoken language, right? And so what we're doing as poets is working with a medium that's twice removed from the original source, right? The original source is thought. Um, or even, you know, three times removed if you consider the original source to be experience um, or the experience of cognition. Um, and so we're taking this thing that is like multiply removed from its source, this sort of inherently clumsy medium. You know, there's bound to be mistranslations in that process of taking it that many steps away from the source. There's bound to be mistranslations. So every poem is kind of doomed. You know, every any poem that anyone can write is kind of doomed. Um, because of this like built-in flaw in the in the way that we're writing it, you know, because it is an approximation of speech, which is an approximation of thought, which is an approximation of uh, experience, or you know, the experience of cognition, um, it's inherently doomed. And so, to go into an enterprise like writing a poem, knowing that some part of it will fail. Uh, and to go into it anyways, you know, uh, is, is, it's this kind of idiot valor, you know, uh, it's this really, really sort of miraculous, brave, boneheaded thing. And I think it's, I think it's what, you know, I think it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. And I'm sure if you're still listening, you're probably thinking that way too. I love those closing comments by Covey on the idiot valor of poetry. Yes this miraculous, brave, boneheaded thing that we're all boneheadedly committed to. Lovely. It's so great to be reminded of that. Thank you so much, Cave, for coming in and doing this with me. 2017 is turning out to be an incredible year for poetry, and it's really exciting to mark the publication of Cave's first collection, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, in this way. 
as ever, it would be great if you could do us a one line or two review on iTunes. That would really help to publicize the podcast further. Thank you so much if you do one of those for us. And don't forget, we're also on Twitter as uh, at Poetry Pharmacy, where we make it our mission to share poems on a daily basis for whatever ails body and soul. And if you're wanting a prescription, we're more than happy to provide one. Just DM us or tweet whatever's ailing you, big or small, and we'll find you a poem. You can also email thepoetryfarmacy at gmail.com with requests. Looking forward to reading and sharing some more poems with you next time on The Poetry Pharmacy. Take care until then. Bye.